And now, Father, as we come to your word, thank you for the way that it strengthens us and nourishes our souls. Thank you for the way that it convicts us and corrects us and comforts us. Thank you for the way that it trains us in your ways. And thank you for the way that it conforms us to Christ's image. We pray that these things, these goals, these, these ends would be reached through the preaching of your word. That you would grow us in Christ's likeness. That you would comfort us. That you would strengthen us. All for the glory of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 10 today. We'll be continuing this study that we've been in for over two years now, if you can believe that. Um, this is actually the 76th lesson that we've had in, uh, in John's gospel, but who's counting? But we'll be looking at verses uh, 11 to 18 of John chapter 10 today. At the outset, when we started John chapter 10, I told you guys that this is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite. And perhaps the reason for that is because some of the imagery in this chapter is so vivid and so easy to understand and says so much in so few words. The entire 10th chapter of John's gospel is about a relationship the relationship that exists between Christ and his people, the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. We've seen Jesus twice now liken himself to the shepherd, the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and who leads them into lush, green, safe pastures. That's the image that Jesus gave us in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 9, he gave us another image. We saw that Jesus likened himself to the door of the sheep gate. In the same way that the shepherd um, serves the function of a door into the sheepfold, uh, keeping sheep in and keeping predators out, Jesus is the way into the sheepfold. And these were two very vivid, very clear, easy to understand illustrations that not only serve the purpose of illustrating Jesus' relationship to his sheep, but it also served the purpose, let's not forget, given the context, it also served the purpose of rebuking the Pharisees and every false shepherd throughout the ages. But the question that maybe we want to start with today is this. In the passage where Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, what is it exactly that makes a shepherd good? You could probably come up with a whole list of things that make a shepherd good, but the starting point is this, that the shepherd cares for the sheep. A shepherd that doesn't care for the sheep not only won't be a good shepherd, but the sheep are going to suffer while under the care of an uncaring shepherd. We saw in verse 10 that Jesus offers life. He offers abundant life 
to his sheep. And we saw how wonderfully and how beautifully Psalm 23 illustrates the kind of abundant life and the kind of loving care uh, with which the Lord tends to his sheep. The Lord goes far beyond simply providing for our, our, our basics. No, he gives us everything we need. He, he provides us. He leads us, and he provides us with everything we need. And of course, first and foremost, our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. But he guides his sheep, we saw in Psalm 23, he guides them through the valley of the shadow of death and into their eternal home where he has prepared a place at the table for them and where he treats and comforts their wounds from the journey. And with all that in mind, we now come to what is the fourth I am statement in, uh, in John's gospel that Jesus makes. And this is maybe my favorite out of all the I am statements because it just takes so many things, so many different aspects of Jesus, who he is and what he came for, and it packages them up very nice and tight uh, in a way that's very vivid, very easy to understand. And it's an amazingly clear picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, Jesus is going to continue to rebuke the Pharisees in this passage that we'll be looking at. But the point of this passage is that Jesus is the good shepherd and the only shepherd worth following. Jesus is the good shepherd and the only shepherd worth following. There's no other religion in the world that you can say that about. There's no other religion in the world in which the founder can be likened to a shepherd. In every other world religion, the focus is usually not so much on the founder himself as the focus is on uh, primarily the philosophy and the teachings that they left their followers with. So you're not following the person as much as you're following their philosophy or their, their teachings. Uh, the religion could exist without the founder. But that's not true of the Christian faith. It couldn't exist without Jesus. Our focus is on following Jesus, the good shepherd, as his sheep. And the Christian faith could not exist apart from him, apart from him calling us by name, apart from him leading us, apart from him providing for us and guiding us. He is the good shepherd, and he is the only shepherd worth following. And so, to a mixed audience, which consists of Pharisees, which consists of some of Jesus' followers, some of his disciples, uh, the man who was born blind but was healed by Jesus in the previous chapter, and some others who were there. This is what Jesus says to them as he continues to illustrate his relationship to the sheep. Let's look at verses 11 to 13. Jesus continues saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the greatest evidence of that statement is the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this is in contrast, remember, to the false shepherds, 
the Pharisees, who, who are likened here to hirelings or, or hired hands, depending on which translation you're using. These false shepherds not only did not lay their lives down for the sheep, instead they laid down the lives of the sheep for themselves. They were there to profit in some way, to gain in some way from the sheep. So there's a huge difference that we should see from the outset between the relationship that the good and true shepherd has to his sheep and the relationship that these false shepherds had to the sheep. The false shepherds, of course, were selfish. They were motivated by things like greed and power and worldly treasure, whereas the good shepherd, he's selfless. It's a huge difference. One group motivated by selfishness, the good shepherd motivated by nothing but love. Love for the sheep. The image of a shepherd as a means of illustrating his relationship to us, God's relationship to us, says so much throughout the Old Testament uh, because we see it throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor. It's an illustration of a good and faithful uh, governance or leadership, sometimes in a physical sense, but especially in a spiritual sense. That's why Ezekiel devoted an entire chapter uh, to God warning of the, the, the shepherds of Israel who were profiting and, and killing the sheep. They had abused and misused the flock. But you see, the calling of a shepherd is to put the safety and the well-being of the sheep ahead of his own safety and well-being. The same is true today. If you were to find a shepherd today, that, that is what a shepherd must do in order to be successful. He must put the safety and the well-being of the sheep ahead of himself. And the same is true, by the way, when a man is called to ministry of any sort. Of any sort. On any level. I mean, we think of shepherds as having a very low, uh, very humble position uh, shepherds are often uneducated, they're often uh, very socially awkward, uh, they're often very rough and rugged people, and, and the job requires some of these qualities. But in God's economy, to be called to shepherd is not a lowly position at all. It is the highest calling. It's a calling, by the way, that every single Christian father has toward his family his children, his wife. Anybody read Vody Balcom's book on the subject? You should. It's a great book. He talks about that calling that every Christian father has to shepherd his family. And it's a calling that a man who is called to be a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher in a local church has toward the church family. See, the word pastor is actually derived from the Latin word, which means shepherd. It's a very high calling. It is the highest calling. It's one that we should take extremely seriously. Jesus did. Jesus took his calling as a shepherd very seriously, so seriously that he would lay down his life for the sheep. And of course, this would be the greatest act of love in all of human history. Nothing else even comes close. Nothing. Not the most romantic movie. Nothing, nothing, nothing comes close to a demonstration of God's love. The greatest love that exists. 
Paul says this of, of Christ's sacrificial, selfless, unconditional love for his sheep. He says this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who could possibly deserve that? Who could possibly merit that? Who could, who could deserve God stepping down, taking on flesh, the second person of the Trinity becoming a man for us, to die for us? Nobody. Nobody deserves it. Nobody could earn it. It has to be unmerited. It has to be unconditional. Because not a single person in all of history could possibly deserve that kind of love, to be loved in this manner by the very same God against whom they have done nothing but sin and rebel continually. Now, looking at the text here in John very carefully... Let's remember that the words I am, when Jesus says I am the good shepherd, the words I am are a reference back to Moses at the burning bush. When he was told to tell the Israelites, when he asked, who am I supposed to say sent me? And God told him, tell them I am sent you. So these are very significant words. And the meaning of these words, the significance of these words, wasn't lost on the people of Jesus' time. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying, which is why they would go on to try him and murder him for blasphemy. They understood that when Jesus used these words, when he said, I am, in this case, the good shepherd, he was claiming to be the exact same I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. He doesn't say he's a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Meaning there's nobody else. There's no other that fits that title. Only him. He is the good shepherd. Shepherd. From the beginning of the Bible, we're introduced to men who were shepherds, right? Abel. What was his job? What was his role? He was a keeper of flocks, we read. He was a shepherd. Jacob was also a shepherd. When God called Moses from the burning bush, what was Moses doing? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, we read that he was, quote, pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He too was a shepherd. And of course, David is another example. David's another one who was a famous, a very well-known shepherd. And yet, while each of these men was a good shepherd, not one of these was the good shepherd. They were the shadows. Christ is the substance. They gave us glimpses, foreshadows of, of Christ, but Jesus was the fullness of God in the flesh. Jesus is the shepherd that David referred to in Psalm 23 when he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And this is why Jesus identifies himself in this way, in this text. This is exactly what he is identifying himself as. The good shepherd. David's shepherd. Jacob's shepherd. 
the shepherd of the saints throughout the ages. He was claiming to be the shepherd of Israel, of God's people throughout the ages. Now, the word good is interesting because it can mean a lot of different things. People have a lot of different ideas of, of what good even means, but there are actually two different Greek words uh, that get translated into good in our Bibles, and they have very different meanings. The first word is agathos, uh, which is the word that Paul uses when he lists off the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, goodness is one of the, the fruit of, part of the fruit of the Spirit. It refers to that which is morally good, good in, in a moral way, good in an honorable way, but that's not the word that Jesus uses here. Instead, Jesus uses the other Greek word, which translates into good in our Bibles, which is kalos. Kalos. That refers to something that is good in a beautiful sense, in a, in a true sense, in a genuine sense. It means good in a magnificent sense and in a praiseworthy sense. Now we have to see that Jesus is once again contrasting himself with the false shepherds, with the Pharisees. He likens them to hired hands. See, there are two kinds of shepherds that we, you would find in ancient Israel. There were shepherds who actually owned, personally owned, the sheep in their flock, and then there were shepherds who didn't personally own the sheep in their flocks. They would just be paid to shepherd a, a flock of sheep. They would be hired hands. They'd be hired to do that job. Philip Keller was a pastor who grew up as a shepherd and he was the first type. He was the type that actually personally owned his own flock, owned his sheep. And he writes of his experience. He says this of his sheep. He says, quote, They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first small flock... I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were in very truth a part of me and I of them. He goes on to say, it made those 30 ewes exceedingly precious to me. End quote. And that's what we would expect. That's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of love and connection that we would expect from a shepherd who was personally invested in the safety and welfare of his flock. If one of his sheep, uh, you know, dies or is stolen or gets a disease, you know, it's going to cost him personally. But Keller goes on to note that that's not at all how a hired shepherd feels about the flock that he tends to. He writes of one such shepherd whom he knew. He says, quote, he ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites, end quote. So the primary difference between these two types of shepherds, between the shepherd who, who actually owns his sheep and the shepherd who is just a hired hand, the primary difference between these two types of shepherds is how much they love and care for their flock. A shepherd who personally owns his flock would prepare lush, green pastures for his flock. And when a predator came which threatened the safety and well-being of his sheep, the sheep that he owned, the shepherd would defend his sheep with his very life. 
because his own life and his own livelihood depended on the safety and the well-being of his sheep. A hired hand, on the other hand, a shepherd who doesn't own his sheep but is just paid to watch sheep, has nothing to gain and nothing to lose by defending sheep against a predator. And so what does he do? What does the hired shepherd do when a wolf or a bear are hungry and they start stalking the flock that he's watching? They book it, right? They, they run for their lives. You're not going to get paid more if you protect the sheep. Um, and even if you get paid more, what if it costs you your life? Is it worth it? No, you just get out of there. Now, they might be a, a halfway decent shepherd when things are safe. But when danger presents itself, the shepherd, who is a hired hand, leaves the sheep. He abandons his post and leaves the sheep to die. Jesus says in verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. What's the hired hand's greatest concern? It's not the sheep. His number one priority, his, his, his number one concern is his own safety and well-being. Friends, there will be many, many, many false shepherds that we encounter. Men who claim to be shepherds, but whose greatest interest is not feeding or protecting or providing for the sheep, but rather their greatest priority, their number one interest is themselves, to make something, to make money, to make a name for themselves, to have power, to have fame. It's easy to want those things, but whatever it is, their motivation for shepherding is not a love for God. Their motivation for shepherding is neither a love for God, nor is it a love for God's people, as much as it's for something that would benefit them personally, something that exalts them, something that empowers them. A big stage, fans. So be careful, be, be very careful of anyone who is primarily looking out for his own interests. Now, got to add a caveat to that. Easier said than done. Sometimes it's really obvious, right? But most in our day and age are very, very subtle. I mean, you probably know that if you turn on TBN, all you're going to be fed is garbage, right? TBN is garbage. That's where you're going to find the prosperity gospel and all kinds of heresy and false teachings that go along with that. Those are very obvious. But in our day and age, especially with the internet, a lot of them are very, very subtle. We have to, as Charles Spurgeon said, not only know what is true, we have to know the difference between what is true and close to true, almost true. But compare everything with Scripture. That's our measuring stick for what is true and what isn't true. One of the things that we can be sure of is that if the world proclaims or if they just love the teachings of a so-called shepherd, he's a false shepherd with a false message. If the world embraces what they're teaching, that's not how the world responds to the gospel. 
The world doesn't love the message of the gospel. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says this, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's called discernment. Every Christian must have discernment. But in order to have discernment, you must know the Scriptures because in order to know what's false, you have to first know what's true. If you don't know what's true, you're not going to have any idea when somebody presents a false idea to you. Just like if you don't know what makes a real or a counterfeit $100 bill, it's easy to pass one off on somebody who has no idea, right? The same works with biblical concepts. But when John says this, when he says, we are from God, he who knows God listens to us, who is us there? Who's the us that John's referring to? It's the apostles. It's their writings as contained in the scriptures, which affirm the entire canon of scripture. But know this, the false shepherd will draw the attention of the world. They will draw the accolades and the affection and the applause of the world. His message won't ruffle their feathers. And when that's the case, when you see that, if you're not going to run, at least use very, very careful discernment. Be very, very cautious. Charles Spurgeon, another quote from him, he said this, quote, If you know a gospel which is approved by the age and patronized by the learned, that gospel is a lie. End quote. See, the world is never going to have the same message as the church. Never. That's the danger of this new social justice cult. And that's what makes it very obvious that they are a cult. The fact that their message lines right up with the message that you will see from satanic movements out there saying that they're acting in the name of justice, but who have already showed their hand. They're looking to destroy the family. They're looking to turn society on its head. Their website used to say it. They took it off because it was so blatant. And you've got churches proclaiming the same message as them? True or false message? It's so easy. But you have to know what's true first. And that starts with the scriptures. A hired hand isn't driven by love for the sheep, but the good shepherd is. And so the good shepherd cares for and protects and provides for the sheep. What a, what a great reminder. What a beautiful reminder that whatever circumstances we face, it holds true. Jesus loves his sheep and he laid down his life for them. As God's sheep, therefore, he's with us, he's watching over us, He's guiding us. He's protecting us. He's providing for us. All the things that a good shepherd would do because Christ is not just a good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, Jesus underscores two 
very important aspects of his ministry here. Again, this is the, type, uh, the time of year where we start asking and remembering why Jesus came. He gives us two reasons here. The first is to lay down his life for the sheep. Undoubtedly, this is the primary reason that Jesus, who is fully and eternally God, stepped down from eternity and took on flesh. He came that he may die for the sheep. And of course, he's referring to his own sacrificial death, which was to come on Calvary. This, above all things, above every other reason, is not only why Jesus came, but it's also why Jesus is the good shepherd. In verse 10, Jesus said that he came to give abundant life to his sheep. And and here he spells out exactly how he's going to do that. He gives abundant life to his sheep, but how? Right here it says he would give them life by dying in their place, thereby saving them from both the penalty and the power of their sins, one day from the presence of sin. But we find this purpose that Jesus came foretold in various places throughout the Old Testament, but we also find it emphasized from the outset of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel told, uh, told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We find the same emphasis in Matthew's gospel account of the Last Supper uh, in chapter 26, where Jesus says to the disciples as he broke bread, take, eat, this is my body. And as he passed the cup, he said to them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's he talking about? He's talking about this purpose. He's talking about the fact that he was about to lay down his own life for the sheep. Jesus came to do that, to lay down his life for the sheep. There's one idea that Jesus has died for everybody. That's not what he says here. It's not what he says here. He says he died for his sheep. Only the sins of his people were imputed to him on the cross, just like only his people had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Right? On the cross, Jesus' perfect righteousness was imputed, it was credited or transferred to every single person throughout history who would believe. And in turn, their sin was imputed to him. And it only applies to his sheep. And those are the people he died for. Yes, his death is sufficient for the salvation of all who come to him, but the question then is, who's going to come to him? On their own, nobody. And we've covered this multiple, multiple times throughout John's gospel. Nobody would come to Jesus on their own. Not because the door to salvation isn't open, but because we hate the light, we love darkness, we hate righteousness by nature, and we love sin. And we choose that sin over him, over his righteousness in our flesh, on our own. Nobody can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them to him. That's John 6, 44. Those are the people 
Jesus died for. Is that you? You might be wondering today, how can I, how can I know if that's me? And the answer is, do you believe in Jesus? Because if you truly do, it, that's not of your own doing. It's grace. It's God's grace. It's God's doing. And if you can say that you truly do believe that Jesus died for you, then you can know that he died for you specifically, that he died for you particularly, and that he took joy in laying his life down for you. Here's another wonderful and comforting truth that we find implied in this statement. Jesus, the good shepherd, not only laid down his life for you, but he did it willfully. He laid it down. It wasn't taken from him. He laid it down willfully and voluntarily. Nobody took his life from him. He willfully laid down his life to give life to his sheep. Now it's true that Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate and that Roman centurions were the ones who hoisted Jesus onto the cross and who nailed his hands and, and his feet to the cross, but they were only able to do that because Jesus didn't stop them. In fact, God had ordained not only that the crucifixion would take place, but he also ordained exactly when it would take place. In Matthew chapter 26, you find that the chief priests from the outset, the beginning of the chapter, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they're plotting to kill Jesus. But then in verse 5, they decide not to. And this is what they say to one another. Not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. And of course, he's, they're, they're referring to the Passover festival. They decided to wait. They didn't want to do it during the Passover festival because it might rock the boat a little bit too hard. But guess who had no, eye, uh, no, no say in whether or not they would do it or when they would do it? Those very people. They had no say in it. Not only did Jesus know from eternity that he would come to lay down his life for the sheep, but he allowed it to happen. And not only did he allow it to happen, but he planned it from eternity past. All of it. He ordained the means, he ordained the day, he ordained everything. His death was not only sacrificial, but it was willful. It was voluntary. None of it was accidental. None of it was incidental. Every minute detail ordained by God, he even made the iron that they used to make the nails he even made the wood for the tree that he would hang on. All of these truths underscore how good Jesus is. How good the good shepherd is. How beautiful his love is for the sheep and how magnificently praiseworthy Jesus is. Truly, Jesus is the good shepherd and the only shepherd worth following. Now Jesus continues, verses 14 to 18. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Another one of the most comforting truths that we can know about Jesus from this text is that he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. There's not one of his sheep who will hear the words, away from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. He knows all of his sheep. There's not one that he doesn't know. What a, what a wonderful truth that is. Not a single one of his sheep is unknown by him or, or doesn't know him. God ordains not only the ends that his people will be saved, but he also ordains the means to the end that his people will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They will all, every one of them, know him and be known by him, and they will follow him. Now one thing we have to keep in mind is that while he knows who his sheep are, we don't, at least not precisely. That's to say, we don't know who all the elect are. There are over 7 billion people in the world, though, and God has ordained that his sheep must hear his voice. They must hear the gospel. And so, we must go. We must go. We must preach the gospel to whoever. Because that's the means by which Jesus calls his sheep to follow him. Through the preaching of the gospel. And by the way, it's a very, very, very good thing that we don't know who they are. Because if we did, we'd be a lot more selective about who we'd preach to, wouldn't we? James Montgomery Boyce writes this in his commentary on John. He says, quote, If we had lived in Sodom, would we have judged Lot, Abraham's nephew, to be a saved man? Probably not. Yet the New Testament tells us that he was accounted righteous in the sight of God. And he goes on to, to note, quote, We cannot know precisely who these are for whom Christ died, but Jesus does know them and died for them. End quote. And friends, this is not only what motivates missions, it's also what motivates evangelism. And it's also a truth that prevents a missionary or an evangelist from growing discouraged when they aren't seeing the kind of results that maybe they in their flesh had hoped for. It also prevents the missionary and the evangelist from tweaking the gospel, from, from saying, you know, if I, if I just water it down a little bit more, maybe some people will be more inclined to believe. No, they have to hear the gospel, the, the, the whole thing, the real thing. If you water it down, it loses its power. And so to prevent us from manipulating people and trying to twist the gospel or water the gospel down, we must remember this principle, that it's the gospel that has the power to save. And Jesus knows who his people are. 
And when the gospel is preached, his sheep hear his voice. Our job is just to preach. Our job is just to evangelize. It's God's job. That's, that's his role, to take our preaching and to use it to call his sheep. God isn't going to judge or, or commend you because of how many converts you've won. He's going to judge you by how faithful you were to just faithfully obey. How willing you were to, to say, okay, whatever the cost, I'll just obey. I, I get that this seems like foolishness to man. I get that I'm going to be scorned by the world, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because you told me to. That's why we're here today, by the way. That's why we meet. That's why we sing because he told us to. Why do we sing psalms? You won't find that in most churches. Some people come in and say, that's kind of weird that you sing psalms. Okay, Colossians 3.16 says that we're supposed to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, we sing psalms. We're just faithful to what he says, even if we don't completely understand why. If we understand what he says, and just obey it anyway. That's what God commends and blesses. So the first great purpose of Jesus' ministry, the first reason he came that he underscores here was to die for his sheep. They would be scattered among the nations, but he would be faithful to call them just as he was faithful to die for them. That is a central purpose of him taking on flesh, but Jesus gives us a second reason that he came right here. To gather all of his sheep into one flock. Jesus says, I have other sheep. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to have. He says, I have. Current, present tense. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. What fold is he talking about when he says this fold? He's referring to Judaism. He says, I must bring them also, the sheep outside of Judaism, And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And I think it's important to to see this and to think deeply about this. The world is a big place. But Jesus is saying that there are sheep from every fold in the world that belong to him. Who already belonged to him when he was saying this. And who could have guessed that in, in that time... When Jesus said this, who could have guessed that the gospel would be carried around the world the way that it has been? In the end, the Apostle John gives us this vision of what heaven is going to look like when all the sheep are in one fold together and they're singing before the throne of God and they're saying this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's where Jesus' sheep are. And it's certain. Jesus is certain this is going to happen. My sheep are going to be called. He will not fail to call and to gather every single last one of his sheep. He doesn't say that he hopes that he'll be able to gather some sheep, he says he will. Look very carefully at verse 16. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Does he sound uncertain about that? Does he sound like he's just hoping for the best? He says, I have, not I hope for. He says, I must bring them, not hopefully they'll come. He says, they will hear my voice, not, well, hopefully they'll hear about me. Also that they will, not might, so that they will become one flock with one good shepherd. Does it sound like Jesus is even remotely uncertain about the success of this prophecy? What a great comfort it is to know that Jesus knows his sheep from eternity and that he knows them intimately. Not not just knows about them, he knows them as in he sets his love on them from eternity to know in, in a relational sense not just knows about them, not, not, not like they're just some, something abstract. No, he knows them personally from eternity past. He calls them, look at verse 14, he calls them my own. I don't think Jesus could have declared with greater emphasis or with greater clarity his certain and sovereign plan to call and redeem a particular people. Jesus did not come to make salvation possible. He came to actually accomplish the redemption of his people. He would lay down his life for them. There, there's, nothing, there, there's nothing that Jesus does where he, he's just saying, oh, it's possible that this will happen. I'm just going to hope for the best. No, he came to accomplish something certain. He would lay down his life for the sheep. And in, in time, in, in, in our time, he would call them. And they would hear his voice. Now I want to talk about that for a second. Because there are some people that have some seriously just wonky ideas about what it means to hear Christ's voice. Some people that I, that I know and, and love have actually been, uh, you know, come away from sermons that they've heard very confused because the pastor was saying in his sermon that this means that you are literally and physically going to hear Jesus' voice the same way that you are right now hearing my voice or the same way that you would hear the voice of, uh, you know, somebody who's talking to you uh, here after church. There will actually be sound waves that register in your physical eardrum. Uh, one pastor reportedly preached that he sometimes hears Jesus talking to him while he's walking down the street. Friends, let me just tell you this. This is such a dangerous idea and such an unbiblical understanding of this text. That, that is not what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying? I think one of the ways to understand is to look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. He says this in verse 14. He writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not of whom they have not heard. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear what? How will they hear who? 
how will they hear Christ? Paul concludes this thought in verse 17, writing, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is talking about the way that God brings a person to saving faith. It's by hearing the gospel preached. And when a person responds in faith, it's because that person heard the voice of the good shepherd calling their name, and they believed. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, to lay down his life for his sheep. And he came to call all of his sheep from throughout the centuries all into one flock. What that means, friends, is that there is to be a type of unity among us that you don't find in any other human-made institution. No other institution that's comprised of human beings has the same kind of unity that we are to have as Christians. We're to have some fellowship. We are to have some things in common, sure. There's room for disagreement on some things that are non-essential, maybe a little bit tougher to understand or decipher in Scripture, sure. But we are one flock with one shepherd. There is to be unity among us because our unity is based on the fact that we are one flock in Christ Jesus. From throughout the ages, from around the world, one flock. Now there are some really foolish, worldly ideas floating around in the American church today. One of the most foolish is the idea that Christians have to do something in order to find reconciliation between the races, between people with different ethnic backgrounds. No, that is a lie. We don't have to work to accomplish that. What Jesus is saying is that he accomplished it. Our unity isn't the result of our work. Our unity is the result of whose work? Jesus' work. He has already achieved our unity. Unity isn't a pipe dream that he hoped for. It's an established fact. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep in order to accomplish it. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we're going to agree about absolutely everything. We will agree about the essentials. You can look throughout church history. There's a core set of doctrines that the church has always, always, always agreed on. Now, some will say that one of the greatest proofs that Christianity isn't true is the fact that there are disagreements over secondary issues, that there are different denominations. But the reality is the fact that we love one another despite those secondary differences is actually one of the greatest evidences of the truth of Christianity. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, The worst times for the church, the times when the gospel has been most corrupted and muted, were times when Christians were organized into single religious and uh, into a single religious and political institution, end quote. Now, if we're being honest... Sometimes there is disunity in the church. But it's not because our unity isn't already accomplished. It's because sin gets in the way. So that doesn't mean that we have to be reconciled to one another because of the colors of our skin. If if, if there's any sin, 
that's preventing us from living in this reality that Christ has accomplished. We have to, re- to recognize and to repent of that sin because Christ has already established our unity. He's already reconciled Jews and Gentiles who had a long history, centuries of conflict behind them, dividing them. And yet, Christ called both people from both into one flock and established their unity with his blood. And again, this is a work that Jesus came to accomplish voluntarily. It's established by his death, but it's also established by his resurrection. Look what he says in verse 18 of his willingness to give up his life for the sheep. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So not only did Jesus have the authority to die for the sheep, but he had the authority to be raised for the sheep as well. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that he had the authority to lay down his life for the sheep. It's proof that nobody took his own life, but that he willfully laid it down for the sheep. It's proof that he had the authority, and only he had the authority, to do this. And it's proof that his doing so was pleasing and acceptable to the Father, who had given his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this instruction, this commandment. As you consider this passage, friends, I hope you can see the beauty of the love, the great love that the shepherd has for us. He knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows our names. He knows where you come from. He knows what you have done. He knows what you're going to do. He knows the trials you are going to face. And he knows our sins. And he loves us anyway. He loves us so much that he laid down his life for us to gather us into his flock anyway. Guard your heart, friends, against letting this image, what you see in this passage, guard your heart against allowing it to become nothing more than something you've got up here. Because that's, that's what happens when you hear something over and over and over again. It just kind of becomes head knowledge. Dwell on this. Think about this. Let it settle into the depths of your heart. Let it soften your heart daily as you follow him. I, I pray that as you consider the truths in this passage that you would delight in it. And that as you consider these these great truths, that they would comfort you, that they would encourage you, that they would move you to love and to serve our good shepherd with deeper and greater passion and urgency. This past week I read a story about a shepherd in Spain a few years ago who fell asleep on the job Uh, The police started getting calls around 4 a.m. that sheep were starting to fill 
all the streets of a small town, and when all was said and done, they had to round up and gather uh, around a thousand sheep that had escaped from their pen. That's not a very good shepherd. Those sheep were in danger. But Christ is a shepherd who is never off duty. He never grows weary. He never grows tired of leading and protecting and providing for his sheep. He cares for us and is watching over us day and night, not as a shepherd who is a hired hand, not as a shepherd who is looking out for his own interests first and foremost, but as a shepherd who owns the sheep, as a shepherd who loves us and laid his life down for us. Truly, Christ is a good and beautiful and praiseworthy shepherd. And if you know him, you love him. You love him back. The more you know him, the more you'll love him. So I pray that you would know him in this way. And that you would know him as the only shepherd worth following. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, our good shepherd. We confess, Lord, in the silence of our hearts that we are still prone to wander and that if he were not watching out over us, if he were not guiding us, if he were not bringing us into lush green pastures, surely we would wander away and die. So we thank you for giving us your only son, the good shepherd, to watch us, to provide for us, to protect us from whatever may come. Help us, O oh Lord, to find strength and comfort in these truths that Christ would be glorified in our lives and that as we grow to know him and be conformed more and more into his image, our love and devotion for him would grow all for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.